Montebello Church Sermons. Well, it was a hundred miles. That's how far he had to run, a hundred miles. They're called ultra marathons, and the most elite runner can run about this race in about 12 hours, but for the average athlete, it's going to take them about 35 to 48 hours, day and night just running. That just seems unimaginable to me. And yet people pay good money to enter into these races. I had a friend in Bible college who ran one of these, and he explained that the most difficult part of the race was not the physical. I mean, he was in good shape, and his body could handle it. But he explained that the hardest part for him was the mental aspect to the whole thing. He explained to me that towards the last part of the race, he got this thought stuck in his head. The thought was, you've gone far enough. This is further than most people have ever gotten before. Look at all the other runners that already quit. You've done great. There's nothing to be ashamed of. This, this is good enough. And as this thought grew, his focus shifted from the finish line to how far he had gone. He started feeling sorry for himself. He got discouraged and suddenly this pain came flooding in. So by the time that he got to the 99 mile mark, this pestering thought became unavoidable. And so he just stopped. In the middle of the road, one mile from the finish, he just stopped. These brand new followers of Jesus that the writer of Hebrews was addressing had come so far. They had made incredible sacrifices in the face of opposition from the Jewish leaders and being rejected from the community that they had relied on their whole entire lives. Persecuted, hated, isolated from their friends and family, they bravely just kept going. But the pressure grew and grew and their focus began to shift from what lies ahead to what they had lost. Others had already quit and had fallen by the wayside, and the call to just stop was growing louder and louder until, until they got this letter. Because this letter refocuses them, reminds them that they're not in this alone. Others had suffered just like they were suffering. In fact, it was a reminder that this was not something new. This was more, well, this was more like a relay race. They were where they were because others had made it this far. They were carrying on a baton of faith that had been passed down from one generation to the other. A baton covered in blood, sweat, and tears, and loss, sacrifice, grief, stumblings, but the baton was now in their hands. Every generation had brought them one step closer. The writer of Hebrews wants his readers to remember what was being passed on to them by Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses, a baton carried by Jewish slaves in Egypt through the Red Sea over the ruined walls of Jericho. The passage goes on to say, How much more do I need to say? It would take too long to recount the stories of the faith of Gideon and Barak and Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and all the prophets. By faith, these people overthrew kingdoms, ruled with justice, and received what God had promised them. They shut the mouths of lions, quenched the flames of the fire, and escaped death by the edge of the sword. Their weaknesses were turned to strength. They became strong in battle and put whole armies to flight 
Women received their loved ones back again from death, but others were tortured, refused to turn from God in order to be set free. They put their hope in a better life after the resurrection. Some were jeered at and their backs were cut open with whips. Others were chained in prisons. Some died by stoning, some were sawed in half, and others were killed with the sword. Some went about wearing skins of sheep and goats, destitute and oppressed and mistreated. They were too good for this world, wandering over deserts and mountains, hiding in caves and holes in the ground. This valued treasure of faith that each was carrying, each one of these godly people had sacrificed, and now it was in their hands. This was not their race alone. The author reminds us that the only that this was only a lag of the race. Generation after generation had moved closer to the finish line. So why would they quit now? All these great men and women of faith could see the finish line, but only from a distance. But even just a glimpse of it was thrilling to them. He goes on to say this. All these people died having faith. They didn't receive the things that God had promised them, but they saw these things coming in the distant future and rejoiced. They acknowledged that they were living a stranger with no permanent home on earth. Those who say such things make it clear that they're looking for their own country. They had been thinking about the country that they had just left. They would have found a way to go back. Instead, these men were longing for a better country, a heavenly country. That is why God is not ashamed to be called their God. He has prepared a city for them. Well, the writers of Hebrews is pointing out how much sacrifice has gone into the race already, and that they, people that he's writing to, are closer to the end than ever before. A race that hasn't just lasted 48 hours or a week or a month or a year, but for thousands of years, generation after generation, every one of them longing for that finish line. They could see it in the distance, but when their leg of the race was over, they joined the others who had been reaching for the exact same finish line. Imagine what it would be like for them to be in the grandstands while you and I are now on the field. This is our leg of the race. And I don't know exactly how close this leg is from the finish line, but consider that we are in the middle of a unique time in history with this global pandemic. It's an event that is connecting the whole entire world. The, the scale and scope of it is unprecedented. And I can't help but wonder what that crowd in the grandstands of faith might be able to see that, that we can't. Are they standing on their feet right now, standing on their tiptoes, straining to see what's gonna happen in the next couple of weeks and months? The writer of Hebrews goes further and says this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. The reality is that all of life is going to change. It's not going to go back to the way things were before. Consider how radically things changed when 9-11 hit. I remember watching people walk people all the way right up to the plane. But that will never come back again. And if that changed, how much more 
well, things change with all of this, even the way we do church services. I was in a national meeting of pastors, and they were wrestling through the passing of offering plates and the greeting time, communion, coffee bars, Sunday school. And then they realized that they were just going to have to start all over again. So if your faith was attached to the way we did church in the past, then you are going to be devastated. But our faith is not in the way we do our church services. It's not in the building that we meet in. It's not in the events that we run. It's in Christ alone. His true church is not a building or a style of worship or a way of meeting. And those who continue to carry the baton, well, we will always find a way. We'll adapt. We'll adjust. We always have. Persecute us. Imprison us. Try to stomp us out. It just causes us to spread and multiply and grow stronger. We are a movement built on coming back from the dead. As good as gathering together in our church building is, this time of separation forces us to realize that the only sure foundation of our faith is in Christ alone. We will never be separated or isolated from Him. Our faith is to be built on Him alone. No worship band or preaching or building, even hugs, which are all good things, can be the foundation of our faith. Christ alone is supposed to be the foundation of our faith, not Montevilla. I was recently reminded that more powerful and thriving churches than us have had to close their doors recently. He is the only foundation that will remain unshaken. And maybe that is something that we would have never realized unless this quarantine had happened. The writer of Hebrews is telling us to cast off the things that are slowing us down and tripping us off, but oftentimes we can't discern what those things are. So how can we figure that out? Well, we can find the answer in actually the book of James. He says this, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Now wait, don't roll your eyes. I'm not saying that trials are great but that we should have some sort of warped optimism. He's having us just step back and look carefully at the purpose that's behind trials. Look at what they produce. He says this, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let me see if I can give you kind of a silly illustration that will hopefully stick in your mind. My nephew, Elias, he's just this little guy, but he's absolutely incredible at building with Legos. Now imagine one day he enters into the Lego chair competition where he has to build a chair just from Legos. He puts in hours. And eventually he builds an entire chair out of Legos. But he has a problem. In the competition, the judges are going to sit down on the chair and see if it holds. So there's really only one way to find out if this chair, chair will persevere and survive and win the competition. Someone has to actually test it. Someone has to put pressure on it. Yep, what that actually means is that someone has to sit on it. But that also means that everything that he's built could be destroyed. He'd have to start all over again. And whoever sits on that chair, they're also going to really get hurt because 
if you think stepping on Legos would be painful, imagine your whole body. So someone would have to be crazy enough to sit on a Lego chair built by a little kid. And of course, I would do anything for him. So he'd call me and he'd say, hey, can you come over here and test the Lego chair? So I try it. I sit on it and it breaks. But now he knows how to make it stronger. He knows what to get rid of. The testing allows him to figure out how to make it better so that it finally doesn't crash. It perseveres. It wins the contest. It wins a million dollars and he spends all of it on more Legos. The end. Okay, I realize that that's super silly, but I don't want you to lose sight of what it shows. In Hebrews, the writer tells us to cast off the stuff that is slowing us down and tripping us up. But the only way to find out what those things are is through testing, through trials, by pressure being put on you, which means that there'll be failure and pain, but don't panic and start creating excuses and covering things up and lying and pointing your finger at someone else. If you do that, then you just wasted the chance to cast off the things that are slowing you down and get rid of all the things that are tripping you up when you could have instead just humbled yourself and become lighter on your feet. Maybe this quarantine has put incredible stress and pressure on you, maybe even on your marriage. I know being cooped up together for weeks can be like sticking two cats in a bag and over time you're both pretty wounded. But what this time of pressure will reveal is that you have a bunch of impure motives and selfish thinking, and they've been hiding below the surface. But these trials and hardships that we are all facing right now may be the only way to realize you've got some things that you need to work on, that your spouse is married to a jerk. But if you can humble yourself and deal with all that jerkiness that keeps pouring out of you, and the result will be that you'll have a relationship that'll go the distance, that won't just quit. It'll breathe new life into your marriage. Trials, well, they expose what your faith is really based on. How would your faith be impacted if when we came back, we replaced all the normal style of worship with rap or dubstep or country? Some of you would love that, I realize, but for some of you, that would be a real struggle. What if we were to continue meeting together like this online for another year? How would that impact your faith? How would it impact your faith if you lost everything financially or if someone close to you got this virus and passed away or your spouse left you? Now look, I pray none of these things will ever happen to you or that you'll ever have to encounter them. But here is the hard reality. The only safe place for your faith to be grounded in is in Christ alone. Every trial makes your faith more and more purely about Him. God is more concerned with the strength of your faith and your spiritual condition than He is in your comfort here on earth. He's more focused on your eternal condition than on your ease of living here for the short time on this planet. He knows what trials are ahead of you, and he wants you strong enough to finish the race. Don't, don't misinterpret his discipline to be punishment. He loves you, but he wants you to be free from what's slowing you down and what's hurting you because 
He wants you to avoid quitting so close to the end. The writer of Hebrews writes this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. The writer is telling those who are discouraged that you are not alone. There's a, a grandstand of witnesses who've completed their leg of the journey. And there is Christ. There's Christ who made it the whole way despite all the opposition, all the trials, and all the incredible suffering. He finished the entire race. Keep your eyes on him. He is at the goal. Most every radical change in your life came out of some deep suffering, some deep struggle. And if that's true, then we're about to see a radical change that is going to span the globe. It'll happen in how we see each other, how we view poverty, how we see health, how we see social interaction, how we see death, how we see government and how we see life. Because for weeks now, this whole world has been in a timeout. They've had time to think and to ponder. They've had time to reevaluate. They've been isolated. And they're gonna wanna talk, and they also are gonna wanna ask questions. There is a, a sweeping prediction that after all of this, there is actually going to be a global nervous breakdown. It's gonna be devastating. People are going to be ruined by poverty. Their marriages are going to be shattered. And the grief, the grief, I don't think we can comprehend over 60,000 in the United States alone. That seems like a number that's just hard to get your fingers around. But imagine this. Imagine if you filled all the chairs in our sanctuary and balcony with people. And every hour, they all died. We removed the bodies and a whole new batch came in and they passed away. That actually means that that would go on for 24 hours a day for over 10 days. It's just unbelievable. Are, are we really ready? Are we ready to make the sacrifices needed to take advantage of this time? Are we ready to serve and have complicated, uncomfortable conversations? Are we ready to be bold and to take some risks like never before? There is the opportunity to see beauty emerge out of these ashes if, if we're ready. May all this worldwide suffering not be wasted. My friend, the one in the race who couldn't keep running, his perseverance that had just run out, his focus was now firmly on his pain. And that voice that was in his head that kept saying, this is good enough. Look how much you've done already. 99 miles is amazing. Be satisfied with that. It's just not worth it to go any further. All of that stuff tangled him up. It weighed him down. It overwhelmed him. And, and he was unable to go any further. But then, then he heard a voice. The voice was of his brother over the sidelines in the crowd. His brother had also been in the race. But he had already finished and he had made his way back through the crowd until he found his brother because he knew 
that he was on the verge of quitting. And now he was calling out to him. He was saying, you don't know how close you are. Just focus on me. I know you're exhausted, but just listen to me and trust me. And he coaxed him to just take one more step and then another. My friend explained that the more that his brother spoke, the quieter that voice got in his head. His brother never left his side. He stayed with him every single step. Others saw what was going on and they joined in with words of encouragement. And the closer he got, the louder the crowd's encouragement got. Moment by moment, his brother's voice shifted his, his focus from all the agony and all the suffering and everything that he had gone through to the growing thrill of finishing the race well. And faithful to his promise, his brother never left him. He inspired him to endure until he finally threw himself across the finish line into his brother's waiting arms. So may you have your eyes opened to the great cloud of witnesses, the generations of faith was passed on to you. And during this unique leg of the race, may we set aside everything that drags us down and trips us up because this is the moment that we need to rise to the challenge because, because we are closer to the finish line than we have ever been before. May our focus continue to be on Jesus Christ who spurs us on, who runs alongside of us until we fall into his arms as we finish the race together. Montebello Church Sermons.